Hello and welcome to the Car Stories Podcast. My name is Kyle Hyatt. Uh, today we have Tony Angelo with us, a uh, renowned drifter, host of Hot Rod Garage on the Motor Trend channel, and uh, supposedly an all-around nice guy. So let's find <laughs> out. Let's find out. How's it going, Tony? It's going great. Cool, cool. So um, yeah, I guess jumping right into it, you're, uh, you're not from Southern California. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm uh, originally born in Philadelphia and then sort of bounced around a little bit and grew up right, right outside the city. Nice, nice. So you got started like drifting as, I mean, that's kind of how you sort of ended up out here. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Uh, I mean, more or less I was, I was on like the very first wave of drifting Mm -hmm. was, uh, about 1998 or 99. And, uh, my good buddy, Chris Forsberg and I, Mm -hmm. we grew up about a mile apart. Oh, wow. Um, and we were into RX sevens and nobody was in RX sevens at the time. Uh, at the time, the import car scene was all Hondas and Mitsubishis and stuff mm-hmm. in America. But we had these rotaries, and they were pretty quick, and we really liked them. Uh, and basically, um, we knew that people in Japan were tuning them up. And his dad was doing some work overseas, and he brought us back a bunch of option videos and magazines. And we oh, saw awesome. drifting, and we were like, well, this looks super fun and awesome. And uh, we were like, we're going to be, we're going to build drift cars, which was, I mean, it'd be like as if you were like, I'm going to build a unicorn because we had no access to parts or knowledge, but we kind of like figured it out as best we could. And then like kind of dorked around with it for about a year and a half, met my buddy, Matt Petty, who uh, was like the only other guy who was in like sort of, you know, Japanese stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had a, he had a top secret jacket from when he went to Japan. I remember I thought that was pretty cool. And, uh, so honest, ba- that's still pretty cool. It is pretty good. Yeah, 98. <laughs> it was insane. So, um, yeah, we were like, oh, these are like, you know, dudes like us, like they listen to rock and roll music and have tattoos and stuff, but are into Japanese cars. It was kind of kismet. So we were like, you like drifting? We love drifting. And, uh, we decided to go to English town raceway park, uh, and see if we could convince the owner as some snot nosed kids to let us have a drift event. Nice. And he's a super cool dude. And definitely sort of changed all of our lives when he said, yeah, let's do 10 events the first year. And like, I'll do, I'll do the, like, don't worry about insurance or logistics. Just tell people to come. We'll, we'll handle everything. Uh, you set up the cones and we'll split the money. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it was crazy. That's ridiculous. So, uh, you said you started with RX sevens. I mean, which, which generation RX sevens? Second generation RX sevens. Yeah. Yeah. My, my first car was a, um, 83 GSL. Yeah. That was cool. uh, Yeah. It was, uh brown they will so they will, very brown they're cool but they will break your heart yes yeah yes heart wallet cool. sanity rx7s are a cruel mistress they for sure are. um yeah so like i mean looking at those option videos i mean obviously people still look at that stuff but like what about it specifically made you just like want to go do it like, honestly um we were like a bunch of really rowdy kids mm-hmm. uh, in the suburbs of philadelphia and it looked really reckless and fun and just out of control. Uh, and then we were just immediately attracted to it. All right. uh, so it was that. And basically, it was just different. And it looked really, really... And, and it is. It's just so, it's fun. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just so fun. There's so many other things you can do with a car that's very that are very serious. And drifting is really just about kind of goofing around and having fun. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you started with the RX-7. What are, what are some of your other... I mean, did you stick with RX-7s for a while? Or did you, did you well, go the 240 route for a minute? Or So, basically, um, that first year in Englishtown, Raceway Park, uh, we had about, I think, like I said, 10 kind of club-level events. And uh, the only other people in the States that were running club-level events, any drifting events, really was club 4ag out here um and at the end of that first summer it happened so the whole thing happened so quickly 
um, they brought out the, the D1, like, for an event, the Japanese mm-hmm. Drifting League, uh, to do an American driver's surge. Okay. Forsberg and I put our RX-7s. We both had second-gen RX-7s. We nice. put them on a, the back of a rider truck um, that the box had ripped off, and we convinced them to run it to <laughs> us. Uh, so we'd have to go to a loading dock in each town. We needed to unload them. We loaded them up. We drove out, the two of us, and tried to compete for that uh, D1 license mm-hmm. and didn't do great. I didn't drive great. Um, and Chris drove pretty well, but he got awful scores. Um, he kind of got boned. Huh. And what we realized, it was very, it was a very strange thing because on the West Coast, guys, uh, anyone that could throw a car sideways was getting like, you know, support and sponsorship and sure. driving other people's cars and stuff. And we had been, you know, basically serving burgers and stuff to build our cars. Mm-hmm. And we were like, you know, we can do this. We just kind of immediately were like, we should come out here. And uh, it was very quick. Like I said, so that was summer of 03. Formula D it, uh, announced shortly thereafter they were going to have an American Pro Series. Mm-hmm. And we kind of packed it up and our, took our separate routes out to California. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, just the, the, the rider truck thing, they should hand out awards for, for being that sketchy. I, it was. I, nice. I really appreciate that. Yeah. That's... I remember uh, it wouldn't go over like 62 and then at one point it overheated and would go over like 52. <laughs> and we were, of course, pressed for time because we decided to do this very last minute. In fact, we didn't have spot. There were only 40 spots in all of America for this driver's search. And it was sold out immediately on the West Coast. And we wanted to come out. And I remember it's sort of everyone, again, who could kind of throw a car sideways just signed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and this dude, Naoki, who ran the Club 4AG event, said, you can have my spot and my cousin's spot. Oh, wow. So we gave him to us. So then we were like, oh, my God, now we have to like beg friends and family for money and try to get out here yeah so that's what we did and uh yeah it was a long haul just the two it was the first i mean we were like 20 he was, inc- i think chris was 19 i was like 21 or 22 that's incredible uh so we just drove across the country and tried to make this thing happen so yeah basically we got there didn't have a great competition experience but decided like we could do this mm-hmm. that's pretty amazing so <clears throat> getting away from the drift stuff uh mm-hmm. one of the cars that you featured on hot rod garage is uh your demon yeah uh i mean is that you had that since you were in high school yeah that's my very very first car oh wow yeah that's uh that's a pretty cool first so car. that's like the beginning of sort of the very very beginning of cars for me if we go back is more or less that my dad was sort of a mechanic to help put himself through college um he's a pretty uh mechanically uh, astute guy he's pretty sharp with that kind of stuff and uh, was going to school for engineering and didn't ever really have... My parents came from South Philadelphia, um, didn't have a ton of money, so he always wanted cars, but mm-hmm. he never uh, he never had anything super rad. But he knew a ton about them. So uh, growing up, basically, we'd be working on the family station wagon or whatever, and I got, I got into cars, and I was a, a, a really big reader. He got me a bunch of car books that I would kind of drool over even as early as like six, seven, eight. Um, and then I remember when I was 13, uh, my mom said, I'm going to buy your dad a muscle car for his 40th. My parents are really young. Wow. Um, he's, and she said, um, he wants a 68 Camaro. Learn all about it. Find us a good one. Let's buy it for him. It'll blow his mind kind of thing. That's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, so basically, I was like full bore muscle car. I was, I was like just researching, you know, he wanted an SS convertible and we went around looking forever. In fact, didn't bought a car, didn't go through with it. Uh, he never actually got one. And if I'm sure he won't listen to this, but I'm going to build him one soon. I think if I can pull it off. Um, anyway, uh, so that was when I was like 
wait, we're not getting a muscle car? I, I couldn't sleep at night. I was like, I can't, <laughs> this can't happen. So, again, I was 14, and I had at least dreams of, like, taking it on the weekends or something. And I was like, I have to buy a muscle car. That's the only way I can continue to live on this earth. So I started working in tire shops uh, full-time in the summer as, like, a 14-year-old. Uh, saved all my money, and when I was 15 and a half, I found my – I had – this is another thing that – so, you know, I would have bought anything. I was mm-hmm. a kid. I was – delusions of grandeur every rusty piece of garbage was like this is it this is the one um so my dad you know i was still young enough my dad took me around to see most of the cars and he wouldn't let us buy anything even remotely sketchy i looked at chevelles and gtos and you know cutlasses and something like a ton of cars and uh my demon was such an outstanding smoking deal it was the first car he he would let me buy wow it was basically ready to run looking awesome the dude was getting divorced like the next day and he was like obviously i'm sure it was a point of contention sure uh and he didn't want his wife to get her hands on it or any part of it well you know i appreciate that's the best way to profit off of somebody else's misfortune i think yeah yeah and i'm sure like seeing a bright-eyed 15 year old kid who was beyond stoked uh yeah that was the first car that's amazing we went out there and I remember I saw it, in the, it was in the you know the classified ads of the local paper. I didn't even know what a demon was. I knew dusters and stuff like that and darts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I we went out there and uh, I it was on off a major road and I could see it from the major road sitting in front of this guy's driveway and I was like oh man because you know it's bright green and it's loud and it looks crazy and it's got hood scoops and stripes and it was perfect. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really awesome. So. You, uh, you, 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 getting back to the drifting thing, I guess you, you, uh, you drove for formula D, uh, up until what? Oh nine. And then you decided to, uh, start judging. Yeah. Um, like, I had kind of a random route through pro drifting. So I drove, um, basically after that, that first, like we said, we went up to D one and formula D said they were going to start events. I was kind of scraping by getting into whatever car I could, uh, the first year, Got picked up on Falcon for the second year, but it was really like they didn't know how to build cars. We didn't know how to build cars. You know, if you had a good car, it was kind of by by accident. Uh, I had I had a, a third gen RX-7 I was driving then. Uh, we couldn't make it handle right. I got pretty frustrated. Again, kind of a wild maniac kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty brash. Might have blown that opportunity a little bit with some of my behavior looking back. Uh, you know, you learn things the hard way sometimes. And then more or less had to build myself back up from square one the next year. Started driving for a really small team. Um, then started kind of doing my own thing with Mazda. I had an RX-8 then and I think in 07 and 08. And just realized in 08, I kind of took a step back and I, I was I was driving really well. I felt really good. That was a, that was like the Renown type livery car? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I know that yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I love that car. And it handled incredibly well and... Uh, if I could have gotten a little more power into it, it could have been a real contender. But I remember um, feeling really strong uh, towards the middle of 08 and just not getting the results that I thought I deserved. And I actually thought like a lot of people weren't getting them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had skewed things very much towards their top uh, returning drivers. So they had done things where like you came in and if you were in the top... So there's about 60 guys coming to each event at that point. Mm-hmm. If you were in the top 16, you you practiced with the other... 15 guys that were already known to be pretty decent and if you were the other 40 or so because i like i said i had kind of a couple messy years you had to drive with any maniac that could show up and enter the event and oh, wow. usually you'd get one or two uh practice runs because some 
you know, underqualified person put their car into the wall or flipped it over or made a mess of the track. It's a, and that's, it was, that's a really nice way to put it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really difficult to, uh, to get any kind of like upward momentum. But I also realized that uh, sort of the judging had become really complicated. Uh, drifting is uh, sort of inherently vague. It's really hard to nail down exactly what you're looking for and what makes one thing better than the other. Sure. Um, and what they were trying to do was they had, there's four components of the score, uh, speed, line, angle, and style. And they had each judge giving a score for each component. So you had to make four scores for each run as a judge. It was hugely complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, after the end of the year, I kind of approached the owners of the sport, uh, the owners of the series, Formula D, and I said, uh, I have a different system. It would be one judge per component. Uh, and then they can all give a small style score. Hmm. Basically, let them focus on one thing. It's just too much. I mean, the runs are over in 19 seconds. Like, yeah. To, the idea that you're looking at these these four different categories the entire time is insanity. And then you throw into the mix chasing or leading another driver. It's almost impossible. Yeah. Uh, it's still really hard to do. I mean, it's it's not... A, you know, I don't envy those dudes. It's t- people are de- driving better than ever. The cars are faster than ever. Uh, it's it's really tough to be a Formula D judge for sure. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting to see like how the cars have progressed in terms of power in the last. I mean, even just like five or six years. It's insanity. Well, that's my biggest thing. Was I I sat in oh nine. Uh, I, I judged in in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and two thousand eleven. I came back in two thousand twelve when I drove for Scion. Um. And the cars were so much faster. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable. I mean, Formula D cars are now basically the fastest cars that go around turns that have doors. Yeah. Period. period. Yeah. It's insanity. Well, it seems like it feels like everything has an LS in it now, too. Like, yeah. It's, it's pretty ridiculous. It's pretty ridiculous. Um, basically, to have a really competitive FD car, you have to make about 1,000 horsepower. And you have to make at least i would say 600 700 foot pounds of torque for a good 4000 rpm band it's it's pretty insane um and then the lighter and smaller the car is sort of still the better so basically i remember coming into uh, my scion tc which was making about 650 horsepower four cylinder turbo mm-hmm. it was pretty laggy we did some stuff to fix that later but uh i remember just sitting in the car and being like dude stuff is happening so fast in fact i went to one of my buddies i think it was forest we went to seattle which is my favorite track always it's a five eighths mile oval and i was like is the bank smaller than it used to be because it feels smaller and he was like no we're just on it for like three less seconds like there's just no that's a huge it's crazy i mean it was just we were moving so quickly the grip levels had gotten so high and the cars were so fast that literally where it used to feel like you were kind of sailing a boat Mm -hmm. and like nuzzling up to the wall and sort of romancing this thing around the track and now it was like you got the time for like floor it get close don't crash you're done wow so, yeah so after your 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 tc you built you got a, Hur- a hurricane sandy car yeah like the i did yeah, the FRS. yeah tell us about that well um i i wanted to get into an frs as quickly as possible just because sure. it's a super rad car the, the size is great for drifting i thought it would be a really natural drift car and my tc um was annihilated at the end of that season anyway ken gucci had put some pretty good bruises on it and i sort of put it in the coffin mm-hmm. um all, at the end of the year um so it was pretty clear we had to come up with something different and the frs was out and believe it or not just because of the natural disaster hurricane sandy it was actually cheaper for me to buy a car 
uh, than it was for Scion to give me like to give me a car with their their cost. That's that's insane. Yeah, and you know I, the, it, what is crazy is that the car I bought, you probably could have dried out and driven around forever. I mean, mm -hmm. it didn't have any real water damage. It was, you know, that's a a bad car for to be a flood car because it has the the flat engine, the flat four. So yeah. like if it's going to get flooded, that's that one's going to get flooded first. But even that, I mean, it only. The, I think the water came up about halfway up the crankshaft, and it totally could have been. I didn't have the keys for it, and we honestly stripped it immediately. But yeah. uh, it was super clean. It felt weird to pull it apart. It had uh, twenty one hundred miles on it, or something. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty silly. Wow. Um, so, I mean, how how did you make the uh, the transition from like doing the drifting stuff to like working with Hot Rod Garage? I mean, I remember when when that. Like when you showed up one day, like it was it was Finn, you know, Finnegan Freiberger, and then and then like you were there. Like how how that whole deal happen? Oh jeez, um, I know it's I know I felt like it it must have felt pre for me it felt pretty natural because I've always been this hot rod guy. Sure, it just wasn't really something I promoted or had a lot of time to devote to. But um, I've been in the hot rods forever. Um, so basically, I wasn't super stoked on the. Um, the way my FD car was going and the program was going. And I was, I had just gotten married and, uh, I was thinking about doing something a little bit more stable mm -hmm. and just sort of feeling out my options. And it was such a random thing. I do a bit of stunt driving. Sure. Uh, a lot of FD guys do just cause the skill set is very similar. Uh, I came out for, and we had just had a crazy brutal winter. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a shop in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia that I loved actually the super red, like a six bay car shop that we did all our fab stuff and built a race car in. But the year before, we had that polar vortex or oh, whatever. Yeah. And um, one day, it took me like four hours to get into it, just to open the door for the shop. Like, I had to, like, chisel. I had to get a blowtorch to get the gate open and then, like, basically shovel my way in. And I got in, and I was like, "This, I'm going home. I'm over it. <laughs> uh, so the next year, after, like, a really brutal winter, they lined up another winter that was supposed to be awful. And I was like, you know what? Um, I think I want to do more stunt driving. I want to get into the Screen Actors Guild. That's something you have to do. It's part of the sure. thing. Because uh, I'd only done non-union work at the time. Just so happens my buddy Jasper uh, had three months left on his lease and had bought a house uh, in Pasadena and had a house that he had three months left on. So I, we kind of slid in there. And we were there and I was doing a bit of stunt driving and commercial stuff, stuff like that. And we're about to pack up. Uh, and I had heard as soon as we got to town in December that they were looking for a hot rod garage host. I put my name in. Um, it was a sort of a strange way that they did it. They actually did it like an open call. I don't know if you recall, but Oh yeah. I think I do remember that. They made a YouTube video and they're like, this could be you. Um, so lots of people, uh, you know, sort of made videos and I actually made a video too. I sent it to them directly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I never heard anything. Um, my friend, Mark Lenarden, who has since passed away, uh, worked on the show and he'd helped me on my drift program. He was like a video guy it and an editor. His, his RX-7 you guys finished off? Yeah, his RX-7 okay. is when we finished off. He was from Detroit. So um, Mark was working on the show, and he shot my little tryout video um, over at Hoonigan. We did some stuff on Scott Nova, I think. Uh, and basically, I never heard anything, and we were about like sort of winding down our, our California winter adventure. Sure. Um, and I was like, you know what? Uh, just for the hell, like I, I hadn't seen any new host, you know, uh, Finnegan had gone to Georgia already and mm -hmm. Freiberger was kind of doing them by himself. He did one or two that year. And I was like, I, I wonder whatever happened with that. Um, and I reached out and they were like, you know what? Um, we kind of did have a host, but we don't anymore. 
uh, I don't exactly know the circumstances. I, I do actually, but um, sure. anyway, uh, more or less, that dude wasn't quite up to snuff as far as hot rod background. Okay. So then I knew that me clearly not being known for having a hot rod background was a little bit of a tough sell. Um, they like me from my, you know, sort of people are aware of me a little bit and I'd done a couple things and, uh, I'd done some stuff on camera, but the, the actual like, uh, authenticity of my, of my hot rod, uh, knowledge and stuff was definitely in question. So I went in, I met with the producer. She was super cool. Mark was on the show, still working. He did everything. He did editing and shooting and oh, wow. all sorts of stuff. He was sort of their go-to guy for whatever they needed uh, done. And I had to meet with Freiberger and I had to do an oral hot rod quiz or wow. exam, more or less. That was, uh, was it pretty brutal or? It actually wasn't bad. I mean, okay. it really wasn't that bad. Um, I think a lot of what he was concerned about was that I was comfortable working on cars. Okay. Which I'm very comfortable working on cars. Um, and that, and then sort of just general knowledge. And what's, what's so funny is that, like, I basically read Hot Rod instead of paying attention in high school, like every day. So I, there's guys that know a lot about cars, and then there's sort of those Hot Rod guys that are like walking encyclopedias of like, which, what year this marker lamp changed to yeah. this, and when, when, when did the 67 you know, Camaro, which one has a, a chrome rearview mirror, and which one doesn't, and why not? And all. So mm-hmm. I, I do know a lot of that just random trivia. So it was some of that stuff, and then it was some of sort of like, would you be comfortable tearing the suspension apart on this car and stuff like that? And then um, I forget we talked about my uh, my truck. Well, it was Mark's truck at the time, um, and I basically just he hit me with like a bunch of Mopar questions, which sure. was like sort of my right inside my my wheelhouse. Um, so I was I knew exactly what he was talking about. He, basically, there's some big uh, early Mopar engines that have steel cranks are internally balanced, and they're sort of uh, they have neutral converters and neutral pulleys and stuff. And later ones don't. And blah, blah. And Mark had a mismatch set up and what to do to fix it. And I was well, not only had I already talked to Mark about it and was like super aware of it, but like I already knew it. So I guess I did fine um, with that. And uh, we started right right after. It was very weird because again. We'd already basically packed our stuff into my truck, and oh, we were wow. going to head okay. back. Uh, and then, you know, this was, it was really, it was up in the air for a couple of weeks, you know, sort of figuring out uh, if it was all going to work out as far as me and as far as the workload and pay and all that sort of stuff. So, more or less, we had driven out one of my big trucks. Um, we put all our stuff back in it, intending on driving back to the East Coast. My wife, myself, our giant Rottweiler, uh, and we spent like three weeks in these sort of forced Airbnb vacations. We went to like Big Bear and we went to Joshua Tree the whole time being like, am I going to, we like literally were like, do we go home? Should we go home? Do you want to, like, I think I'm supposed to hear it by now. Like, should I, should we go home and come back? Or like, what do we want to do? And then it worked out. We, we wound up staying, getting a plate that, you know, they, they hit us up and they're like, yeah, let's do this thing. And, um. We got a place, and we've been here ever since. Nice. Yeah. How how did the whole like Lucky Costa thing? Like he's he's been doing stuff with Hot Rod for a long time. And... Yeah, uh, Lucky's great. Um, he's uh, the best. Yeah. yeah. Um, more or less, Lucky was already there. You know, um, connecting the dots behind the scene a little bit. So, initially, when uh, they they said, uh, you know, you're going to be this the host, it was really to fill in for Finnegan. 
meaning that it would be me and David. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, um, it was just kind of me and David. David has a ton of things going on, and I think it, he just sort of gravitated towards a lot of roadkill stuff he was doing. Yeah. Um, and it was just me, and it was definitely awkward at first. Uh, you know, it's it's really tough to carry it all by yourself, um, sort of the show, and, and give technical information, but at the same time have fun and be alone. Sure. Uh, it's pretty weird. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we had some great successes in the first year, but a couple of awkward moments, especially starting out. Um, so we were like, it'd be cool to have someone to bounce the stuff off of. And Lucky was already there, like working on the cars between episodes. He does that, you know, he works on cars for Roadkill. He works on cars for Horror Garage. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, sort of if we had like a major thing to get done, you know, kind of connect the dots after an episode, stuff like that. Yeah. He'd be there doing it. Or if we needed like to put, drop an engine in and I need an extra hand, he'd already be there. Sure. So then it just became this natural fit. And he's hilarious. I mean, he's like a great one-liner kind of dude who's always having a good time. Uh, and we hit it off so... It just sort of stuck. Awesome. Yeah. yeah you guys are pretty hilarious together. Yeah. Um, it's, we, I mean, you know, we're very, I mean, he grew up in Southern California. He grew up right by the shop, you know, uh, Manhattan Beach area. And uh, it's a bit older than me and stuff, but he's, he's, he's a lot of fun. Nice. Uh, so, like, out of all the projects you worked on, you know, your, your friends are X7, uh, Roll Smokey, the Fury Wagon. What are, what are your favorite sort of hard garage projects so far? I mean, what one's. Roll, Roll Smokey is, is your truck, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Do, do you drive that pretty regularly? Or? I do, yeah. Um, I Yeah, so that that truck is, is kind of got a really cool history. Freiberger bought it um, to tear the 400 block out of it to put into the General Mayhem. So this is years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, that became kind of his signature car. Uh, so that the truck was in that episode, and he thought it was too nice to tear apart, and again, it had that sort of engine imbalance. So we sold it to Mark Lenardin. And then uh, I was talking about buying it from Mark. One of our, this guy we know in Pittsburgh had bought it and I had agreed to drag it home. I had like a big dually out here that we were talking about bringing home with us. And mm-hmm. so we were headed that way anyway. I was going to just trailer it. And then Mark passed away and I reached out to this dude in Pittsburgh and I said, is it cool if I buy it from you and I just keep it? And he was cool with that. And then to be able to do it on the show uh, was really fun because it's a, you know, diesel diesel trucks are super rad and it's a fun way to make a ton of power get great gas mileage tons of reliability i mean they're they're tough to beat for like just something you want to bang around in every day mm-hmm. and it worked out to be a great truck and not only that it was like my first sort of big hit on the show yeah uh it got a huge response it was something different it was something i wanted to do um so i was really stoked on it that was definitely really fun but so far if we're talking about stuff we've already built uh, the Camaro, I think the the seventy nine, you know, the bone marrow yeah, project. Yeah. That's probably um, closest to my heart and the funnest because it's. If you're not aware, it's um, we took a nineteen seventy nine Camaro and we would try to make it a ten second car for ten thousand dollars, including literally everything: mm-hmm. buying the car, replacing the broken windshield, fluids, hardware, a truck LS motor, uh, Chinese turbo kit, everything. Um, we built the whole car. As it stands now, because we had to swap out a torque converter for about ten five, and uh, it did eleven four the other day, and it broke about halfway down the track. So it's pretty nasty fast. Wow. Uh, it doesn't look like much. It's super fun. It's the kind of car you can thrash on and not care about. I mean, it, it hits a lot of a lot of boxes because it, you know, everybody usually is working with a budget. I'd say you know most people out there sure. building hot rods, they want to know how to optimize the performance for dollar, and that's a. Uh, you know, it, it's not that it hasn't been done before, but man, it's just a, 
an incredible formula. If you, you know, those Atlas motors are, there's a reason they're in everything. It's because they work really well. And, and like the, the, this China turbo kit, which, uh, five years ago, I probably wouldn't have touched. It wound up being incredible and working great. And it's just nuts what you can do now because obviously guys have been building cheap, fast cars for a very long time. But every few years, those options sort of change what's affordable. Yeah. And now buying a V8 and putting a turbo on it and fuel engine, you know, you know, tuning a fuel injector, uh, excuse me, tuning the fuel injector computer in there and stuff. It, it's, we did it literally $10,000. You could have done, we could have done it cheaper if we had a little more time. It's, it's a crazy package. Yeah. That's pretty staggering though. Yeah. The, the idea that, yeah, now you can put a, a V8 truck motor and, and, and a turbo kit on something for that, like that kind of money. Like, yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the Chinese, like, yeah, I was watching the episode and you guys are talking about the Chinese turbo kit and I'm like, uh, really? Is this yeah. the thing? Like that, that seems. Again, I've only ever used really high quality stuff like Garrett, you know, yeah. dual ball bearing stuff, which is fantastic in its own right. But for the dirt, dirty cheap dollars for those, uh, those China kits, this thing worked well. Um, it still has no, you know, we've done 20, probably 30 drag strip runs on it. It's still in one piece. It still works great. It's crazy. That's amazing. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, what, what do you, can you, is there anything you can talk about that, that you guys have coming up on a hot rod garage or? Yeah, uh, we do. Uh, we're about to build the coolest thing ever pretty okay. much. Um, all right. I'm, I'm sold already. Yeah, you should be. It's <laughs> going to be the best. So kind of. This is a project I've been dreaming about since about 2014. Uh, I wanted to build a drift muscle car. Okay. Um, in fact, I was pitching it around SEMA when I, right before I came out to California, um, and it didn't get a lot of traction then, and I'm in a position to do it now, and I'm really excited about it. And I just got my hands on uh, basically a 1970 Cuda, and uh, oh, wow. I'm going to put a 6.4 Hemi in it, and I'll show you a picture of the rendering. I can't show Yeah, obviously... Uh, we won't be unveiled until SEMA, but it's, sure. it's going to be really cool. It's going to have some, uh, we'll, we'll say seventies racing, uh, attributes as nice. far as style and stuff. And, uh, yeah, it should be really fun. I'm very excited about it. So that's going to cap out our season. We're going to run that, uh, for the last three episodes this okay. year. Yeah. That sounds pretty incredible. I'm very excited. But yeah. It's also mine. All right. Yeah. Well, that, that helps too. Yeah. yeah. Get a take home at the end of the project. Yeah. Which is rad. And you know, kudas are the best. Yeah. Um, you know, it's sort of the ultimate muscle car for a lot of reasons. Um, they're just the raddest looking, you know, challengers are cool. I'm obviously a little bit Mopar slate, like uh slanted, but, uh, in my opinion, muscle cars kind of got better and better right before they died. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mustang was the first sort of pony car. It's cool. And the Camaro came out. It's a little sleek, more sleek. It's a little kind of sexier. And then in 1970, the Cuda and the Challenger come out, and they're just so rad. Yeah. Um, and I decided to get a Cuda. The wheelbase is a little shorter. Mm-hmm. It should actually work a little bit better on the track. And we're going to do on the show um, custom suspension. I'm going to make a custom three-link for the back. We're going to do make our own arms for the front and stuff, show people all that oh, stuff. Wow. Yeah, sort of been drifting um, as a team owner and uh, spending a lot of time building the car. I, I, uh, I'm pretty adept at, uh, suspension geometry, stuff like that. I know kingpin inclination and steering included angle oh, wow. and scrub radius and uh, bump steer and all that sort of stuff, instant center. Um, so we're going to go through that and kind of spec it out as best we can. It'll be a streetable car, mm-hmm. um, but it should be, it should work pretty well. That's awesome. I'm super excited for some, some deep nerd like suspension stuff. Yeah. It's the one thing, um, I never know how nerd to get. In fact, I'm importing a nerd for that 
for that episode. I'm gonna Michael Jima is gonna come on the show. Oh, okay. Who uh, is the reason I know a lot of those things anyway? When I was doing the FRS, um, I had mine a year before he got his, and we just discussed a lot of suspension theory and stuff. Those cars are tough to get him to steer right. Okay. Um, and he helped me with that a lot. Nice. So, so I mean, obviously, apart from this now uh, amazing sounding drift project, like what what are some other things that you you'd like to maybe turn into a drift car? If if you know, obviously, like time budget etc we're no object like what what would jump um, out at you i really like uh wagons a lot sure um i'm obsessed with m coops a little bit oh the clown shoes yeah nice i think those are super rad i just looked i didn't realize how expensive they are uh because i was toying with the idea of doing like a v8 one uh the other day those seem to have sort of really gone up in value those are cool cars it's just a nice weird little goofy yeah fun simple car it's a weird mishmash of parts too like yeah. i think like the the rear suspension is out of an e30 yep you know from the late 80s and then you've got like e36 motor to start with it's just it's bizarre yeah i i'm I can, I can just kind of imagine that like bmw some guy was sitting around and he was like okay so we have the z3 and it's completely ridiculous looking um and we have these like you know these pretty beastly six-cylinder motors uh how can we make this all work and like kind of make it an m thing but make it different and stand out and also be kind of practical mm-hmm. and you come up with this completely ridiculous but super cool car yeah um that's supposed to be really fun i think as far as like dimensions and stuff it's pretty it would be pretty fun to slide around um so i like those i would like to do for a daily next i want to get uh, an fj80 land cruiser oh nice and put a cummins motor in it okay uh like a later like an 03 the the quiet ones basically sure. um like a common rail diesel mm-hmm. i think that would be super cool um I mean, there's a lot of stuff I want to build. I want to build, um, hopefully next year, to just find just the absolute lightest, whatever smallest rear-wheel drive thing we can find, whether it be an MG or a Triumph or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. and just put the biggest, dumbest American engine in it we can and see how fast we can make it go and do basically endos and stuff around town. Um, I think that'd be really fun. But there's, you know, there's always stuff to to do. That it's what's fun. That I think right now we're in a time where um, people are blurring the lines of a lot of different things. Yeah, you know what I mean. As far as like, you know, I'm gonna put there's gonna be some sort of Japanese style theoretically into like my 1970 Plymouth, mm-hmm. um, and also what's people don't understand is that all this stuff kind of draws on on all these different sort of distinct. Um, uh, sort of genres you know all the rocket money stuff that everyone now equates with like being hardcore this sort of jdm thing uh, I, a lot of the inspiration i think is taken from like 70s american uh muscle cars and race cars and stuff like that well yeah they did that that what is it the the 180 or 240 thing that makes it look like a, a, a challenger or something exactly or, yeah. yeah so I, it's really silly because um i think the bottom line is if you make it look like a race car and you make it drive well it's going to be pretty cool um and then i like a lot of european cars but uh i don't you know they're all really expensive yeah yeah they are <laughs> yeah the porsche market i mean like i i got a real lust after those early 911s but they're you know oh yeah that that just that got so that market got so brutal so quickly it's so strange like i just can't i like the cars but thinking about the numbers is insane to me it seems like it i mean based on just what we were seeing at like pebble like yeah. it seems like the numbers are starting to fall off a little bit. Well, they should, I think. I mean, yeah. I think it was a little bit of an inflated market. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's a bummer to even think that like in 2009, what you could have bought and now what oh, it yeah. cost. 
it was actually really funny. I remember, um, so the market had crashed, the housing market had sort of exploded. Uh, and some, I don't even know who it was at, at Jalopnik wrote an article specifically titled, you should buy a 9-11. This is the cheapest 9-11s are ever going to be, period. And yeah. then went on to explain why. Because at that time, you could buy like, you know, a 1980 SC or something for like 12 grand yeah. or something. And now it's 40. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I like the cars a lot. I'm a little bit bummed about the market. Um, I actually am a little bit bummed uh, about sort of muscle cars in the same way. Uh, well, yeah, there was that, that crazy Mopar, like Hemi bubble. Yeah. And then it's the thing is, you know, what I had to pay to buy basically a Cuda shell is insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's crazy. It's still pretty nuts. My biggest pet peeve and what I like a little bit more about the Porsche market is that Mopar guys or sort of these American car collectors, they do one of two things. They either restore them to this pristine factory condition and then more or less take them off the road, yeah. which basically negates the entire existence or purpose of the car. Or they do these same old, dumb 19-inch rims tucked way up in the fenders, oh, sort of yeah. pro-touring, where the car winds up weighing like 4,500 pounds, and it's stuffed full of gadgets and nonsense. Mm-hmm. And you know it's probably not that fun to drive. Um, there's those two things, and those both. And then, of course, then they want you know 100 grand for it. Sure. So, so both of those uh, sort of extremes really bum me out. And I think somewhere in the middle where you're like, you know, you have a fun raw car and you remember what it was when it was built and why it costs, you know, 4,000 bucks brand new and it shouldn't cost 400 grand now. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of fun. What do you think of, uh, of cars like speaking of kind of being in the middle of those, those two extremes cars, like, um, uh, do you remember like the, the martini Mustang? I think that, that Steve Strope did that was at SEMA a couple of years ago, or, um, he also did that, um, like like it's sort of like a period racing kind of modification. yeah and i love that i yeah. love that I, I think it's cool um the idea that you would take a car from a certain era and build it uh to look like it's from that era i think is super cool mm-hmm. um like in my demon i tried to envision it as like some kid in detroit in like the late 70s and build it out kind of that way um you know jack the back end up a little bit giant yeah. tires in the back and just remember that like you know this was at the time, like a compact sports car um, that people were just out having fun with. So that's sort of right up my alley. I totally dig that big time. Nice. Uh, so speaking of kind of like that road racing aesthetic, are you are you interested in anything other other than drifting? Like, have, have you tried to do much in the way of like grip racing or anything like that? Um, well, I've gotten to do a bit of driving here and there um, with Motor Trend and stuff like that. But I do uh, have a burning desire to compete in some sort of uh, racing I just got hit up by uh, an old buddy who owns a Trans Am team. Oh, and nice. I may try to get into a Trans Am car next year that uh, would be, for one round. That so, would be a blast. So I'd really like to do that. Uh, Peter, if you're listening, we're going to make that happen. <laughs> um, beyond that, uh, not really. It's And we did, like, you know, Lemons race with Roadkill once, but it's Roadkill, so the car broke pretty quick. Uh, yeah, it's if you are uh, sort of a real racer, I think you just have to keep competing. Yeah. So I haven't done it in a while, and I've... This is the first weekend I really spent a ton of time watching Formula D. Um, not that I don't like to watch it. It's just really frustrating if I'm not driving. Sure. Um, and I watched it this this uh, last Texas round, uh, and it was awesome. And I was like, man, I need to drive some serious stuff. So, That's yeah, I, I've got some plans. And, you know, like I said, uh, Trans Am would be really cool. And any kind of lemon stuff I, I think is super fun. Um, but, yeah, if you're out there and you do racing, you should never stop. Yeah. I don't think you can. 
yeah that's uh that's a good advice i think well uh i i really appreciate you taking the time to stop by the podcast and and it was a blast talking to you um and uh definitely psyched to see uh the, the season finale of hot rod garage cool thank you very much man it was a pleasure thank you very much tony cool